Hello, I'm Danielle Yet, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I am a junior member. In this podcast, we get together to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We want Critical Faith to give you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. Each week, we will invite past and present members of ICS and friends of the Institute to join us. We'll ask them to share their journey in scholarship and how it connects to their faith and their lives. I'm Mark Standish, and I'm also an ICS junior member. Joining us today, we have ICS senior member in philosophy of arts and culture, Rebecca Smick. We'll give Rebecca a proper welcome a little later in the program. And that gets us to our first segment, Don't Miss This. In this segment, we'll highlight all kinds of things we don't want you as our listeners to miss. New books and articles in philosophy, theology, and current affairs, important events and anniversaries in these same worlds and in the church year, and every now and then, an event at the Institute for Christian Studies. So Mark, what's something we shouldn't miss out on? Um, Well, mine is looking a little bit forward to July, um, and... It's a concert at the Drake Hotel by A.A. Bondi. A.A. Bondi started out as um, a folk musician um, and has sort of developed into a a very slow alternative rock, I guess. Um, And he hasn't released an album in eight years, but in May he is releasing a new album and so is having is going on tour and on July 8th at the Drake hotel um, at 8 PM, you can go see him and check it out and maybe see me. Uh, My don't miss this is a conference that is coming up on May 25 at Wycliffe college nearby here in Toronto. Uh, And it's called the Junia's daughters conference, which is a reference to like Romans where Paul is like, I can't remember the dude's name. Someone in Junia are apostles after my own heart or something like that. Um, and it's this conference on various aspects of women being in ministry. Um, and I actually just found out today. I knew I've known a couple of people who are planning to go, but I found out today that one of my roommates is presenting in a workshop there. So hers, I think, is going to be on something about like self-care or care for your whole self as a minister and just with a couple other people. But there's a lot of people at this conference, presenting at this conference. So um, two of them, well, the two keynote speakers are Liska Stefko, which I have never heard of, but she works with the branch in Toronto of the L'Arche community. Uh, And then the other one is Thea Prescott, who I've talked to a bit and heard and seen around. And she is at, uh, it's called Sanctuary, which is a, 
yeah, it's a downtown uh, church and community, church community for uh, people who are homeless or have homelessness and kind of on the fringes of society. It's a really cool community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she has a lot of really interesting insights. So, And then there's a bunch of other people who are doing like workshop presentations who are kind of, you know, in and around the TST community, women, just a bunch of women who are in and around the TST community who are all really, really great people. <laughs> so the conference sounds really cool. Uh, I think I will try and go. Mm. It might be a money issue at that point, but I will try and go. Tickets are apparently uh, $50 until April 15. So if you go now, you can get a discount. And then after that, apparently they're 70 For our second segment, we want to give you a glimpse of what it is like to be critically faithful in a graduate school of philosophy, theology, and interdisciplinary studies like ICS. So we're simply asking our guests, what are you working on? We'll talk about seminars and courses taking place at ICS at this moment, the reading and other research our members are doing, our writing, publishing, presentations, and conference participation. Hello, Rebecca, and welcome. Our listeners have heard from you before in the Worldview interviews you did with Grace a little while back, but we'd like to give you a chance to introduce yourself a bit more informally with a few questions. What was your favorite childhood book? Well, uh, a lot of book memories come rushing back when I think about that question. Of course, asking for a favorite is an impossible question, really. Um, So let me give you a couple of experiences, if time allows, you can cut and paste as you feel fit. Um, So Madeline Langle's A Wrinkle in Time was read to me or to Mm. my class when I was in the second grade by a pretty astonishing elementary school teacher uh, in the public school system. Um, The book was relatively new at the time, uh, maybe just a few years old. I think it was written in like 1962 or something. The sensation of hearing that story, imagining it being captivated by the otherness of the world um, she created is a very profound memory for me. So that was, you know, probably um, just as on the cusp of reading myself. Um, so still, it's still with me a lot of years uh, later, and it, I'm kind of in awe of that teacher for this new book to have understood its kind of potential. Um, another memory uh, from a book reading was having The Borrowers read to me. I don't know if you guys no. ever read The Borrowers. Uh, it was read to me serially by my okay. mother, and this this takes you back. Um, it was produced in a children's magazine every week, uh, and we were living in Jerusalem at the time, and there was this sort of weekly event of going to the English language language bookstore, picking up the, the this new installation of the borrowers and going home. Uh, and, and having it read to us. This is my young, the younger of my two brothers and myself. Um, it was momentous. We just waited in anticipation. Uh, it, it was a wonderful way to, to read that book. I was probably six or seven at the time. And then I also remember a sense of awe when reading The Hobbit by Tolkien. Um, around or recognizing that he could create such 
intense feelings of anxiety and fear for the characters in that in the Hobbit, just by putting words on the page, uh, you know, from one creative imagination to you know a receptive imagination, and recognizing how that phenomenon could exist just by words on the page was sort of awesome to me at the time. I couldn't remember thinking, you know, I couldn't even pick up the book sometimes because I f it was, you know, so intense, yeah. you know, what he created. Um, so that too. Um, and then finally, uh, um, my parents had a, a 19th century edition of the Pilgrim's Progress, which sat on a coffee table. Um, and the illustrations were kind of horrific to me of the various virtues and vices that appear in that story. Um, but there, so I would actually walk, skirt that coffee table as much as possible as I went through the room just because of the image vibes, you know. Um, but then it was occasionally read to us and Mr. Valiant for Truth really stuck, it, stuck in my mind to this day who fought, you know, to his death for the sake of truth. Um, and as he descended into the earth, you know, he was saying, death, where is thy sting? Mm -hmm. Grave, where is thy victory? And that really, that image was a very strong one um, coming from, you know, childhood reading. I could go on, <laughs> but I'm stuck. <laughs> okay, uh, switching gears. Yeah. Uh, what is your favorite bar or coffee shop in ICS's hometown? There's one in my neighborhood that I feel very comfortable in. I don't go there a lot, but it's called Jet Fuel. Uh, I think my comfort comes from um, them having a very lackadaisical attitude uh, about the whole coffee shop phenomenon. Um, when they started out, they, you know, they served really good coffee. Um, but then uh, as time went on, they just didn't put any effort in at all. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's, a, you know, it's pretty shabby inside, but it's the institutional place where people go in, in the neighborhood. So I, uh, everyone kind of hangs out there. So it's, it's nice. Um, if you want the antithesis of that approach in the same neighborhood, you can try a place called Tasso's. Uh, it used to be called Olia's. Um, and they serve, you know, mind-blowing coffee and homemade pastries made by Olya, who is the co-owner of this place. Um, they're only open Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Wow. There are lines outside because the pastries run out pretty early on. Mm. Uh, and people come from all over the city. So it is something to try. Well, I would definitely like to try check that out. And our third intro question. Who do you think is the most overrated philosopher of our time, or if you like, of all time? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm not going to give you a straightforward answer right. on that. Um, I think how we evaluate the contribution of philosophers uh, has so much to do with what our culture values mm -hmm. at any given time and what we ourselves value. Uh, that um, pronouncing on the ways in which a particular philosopher uh, might be overrated just seems to be part of the ebb and flow of what philosophy does. Um, but the fate of Kant would be a good example. So he was, you know, the black beast of postmodernism after being the hero of modernism. Um, and the reality of his contribution is more along the lines of the way modernism interpreted him uh, and then set that interpretation in stone, you know, for the coming generations. So Kant is presently being revisited in an effort to retrieve the true nature of his contribution. 
um, by parsing away those that modernist gloss. Um, so it seems to me maybe uh, a mistake to categorically discount any particular philosopher. Um, that outlook probably comes also from my own path towards philosophy. Uh, my initial area of expertise was the art critical literature of the Italian Renaissance, okay. a literature that took many of its categories from classical rhetoric and poetics, from platonic metaphysics, from Aristotelian epistemology and ethics, uh, and from a pretty practical theology of, of the image. Um, so one has to take a real dive into that, the culture of the period to make sense of the concerns of that literature. Um, you're constantly kind of having to suspend modern ways of, of thinking to unearth the logic that governed many of its arguments. Um, and I find that path of discovery really interesting and full of lessons about, you know, applying our own cultural values or ways of understanding backwards. Um, yeah, so that I'm just trained by myself, you know, to suspend those kinds of judgments in order to completely understand the framework out of which uh, a particular philosopher is speaking, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Who would you say is the most overrated artist of all time? I used to, uh, for a long time, and I would say for a very long time, you know, probably a good portion of my, you know, reflection on some of these issues. I've never uh, trusted the, the value that was placed on Picasso. And Picasso's claim to fame, and I mean, this is true when, you know, for all artists, and maybe more so in, in the modern context where, you know, being original in some sense is what really is valued. So in Picasso's case, he had a moment where Cubism was understood to be, you know, the, 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 the watershed in, in not only his own career as being one of the founders of Cubism, but, but as being, uh, um, you know, for the history of modern art as we understand it, Cubism was enormous. Um, and thereafter, and, you know, he was a very talented draftsperson. He, he you know, he had lots of uh, sort of the technical advantages that, um, you know, that maybe somebody, some artists who followed in his footsteps didn't have, I don't know. Uh, but um, after that point, his position kind of, he became it seemed to me quite opportunistic around perpetuating, you know, that, that initial fame that he had. Um, so I didn't, and, and, you know, so I am applying sort of a, a, a character evaluation to Picasso. I didn't find him a character that I, uh, whose life reflected values that were similar to my own, um, which isn't necessary by any means. Um, but I didn't, I felt that there was this opportunism as, as particularly, I mean, his relationship with Brock, um, with, you know, who was his comrade in, in, uh, in the establishment of Cubism, was not a, you know, not an entirely ethical one, probably. But anyway, this is, you know, this is a, um, I'm, it's part of the canon. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, so I'm setting my, you know, putting, putting myself in jeopardy here. <laughs> <laughs> so to get to the topic of this segment, could you tell us a bit about what you're working on these days? Um, so current teaching, what I'll be teaching next year, um, there are three courses, uh, which actually takes us into the following year. Um, but in the fall, I'll be teaching a course which I 
uh, teach in my rotation of courses called Beauty, Theology, Ethics, uh, or Aesthetics. Uh, and we look at the way, at the history of the way beauty has been conceptualized in the Western tradition. So it's a history of ideas mm-hmm. kind of course around beauty, which of course is very, very significant, not only in, you know, in philosophy, um, but also in theology <clears throat> and in ethics. Yeah, I mean, I, I, to elaborate the course a little bit, beauty, of course, in 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 contemporary art theory, has no place whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were are moments. There are maybe in the last ten or fifteen years, people not in art history so much, but there have been people in literature in particular, mm-hmm. um, people like Elaine Scarry, who have tried to recover beauty. But I can't think of anybody in the contemporary art world, you know, who would see beauty as somehow. Uh, a necessity in terms of aesthetics. So where it does show up is in theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the Catholic tradition, you know, has a very substantial um, theological aesthetics, which is rooted in, in beauty and notions of beauty. Um, and what I suppose makes people like Elaine Scarry very interesting is that she's trying to see, um, uh, trying to make claims for, shall we say, the, the, um, the, uh, you know, sort of an, an ontology of beauty, or trying to make claims for the, for it being something that is sub- substantive for human beings. So that's a, a big claim um, these days, and she does it from a from the perspective of a, of a historian of literature. Um, so anyway, beauty is a very fraught uh, um, uh, point of uh, a theme in in the in the history of aesthetics and the history of philosophy. Um, and then, you know, also has uh, a role to play in both theology and ethics. So anyway, that's the way we commented in a kind of a history of ideas approach. Um, the other course I'll be teaching then in the spring is called Re- Reconsidering Kant's Aesthetics. Um, and the course is structured according to several significant themes in the critique of judgment. Um, paying attention, you know, as I sort of talked about in raising the example of Kant, um, in the way that Kant has been interpreted, and then situating the most substantial themes uh, of his corpus or in the critique of judgment in the intellectual context out of which he was working. Um, and those are, I mean, I get more and more sure about this as I, uh, the more I look at Kant, the more I teach the course, that you know, many of the themes in the critique of judgment are fundamentally theological ones. And, um, you know, even even right down to, um, you know, he spends all this time on, on, uh, on the aesthetic as being, you know, the place in which time and space, uh, it's the area in which time and space is really established. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to make sense of when you're reading it in the Critique of Judgment until you realize that that's a pretty basic theological theme when you think about uh, if we're going to have knowledge of things that we can't conceptualize, you know, we're having sensory knowledge of things that cannot easily be uh, conceptualized. Um, establishing the, those things in space and time through our senses is, is quite significant um, because that is the framework for all of our knowledge, uh, and it is the framework out of which we will conceptualize you know, uh, some kind of absolute. So um, it all of a sudden becomes significant if you begin to think of it theologically speaking. Uh, and I'm, I am kind of fascinated by his reputation 
mm-hmm. in modern modernist philosophy mm-hmm. uh, as you know as being you know as having kind of sundered uh, you know or uh, the connection to uh, a traditional metaphysics um, you know by subjectivizing knowledge mm-hmm. uh, anyway so I have I I find that sort of uh, that reconsideration of Kant to be um, one that's very worth pursuing right now. Um, the other course I'll be teaching uh, in the summer, um, all things uh, coming together as they should, uh, is a course called Art, Religion, and Theology, Theologies of Art in the Christian Tradition. Um, and this takes place in Orvieto, Italy, um, where we've um, put on this uh, what we call the Art in Orvieto program mm-hmm. for the last three years. Um, this will be our fourth year. And we... Um, partner with what's called the Studio for Art, Faith, and History from uh, Gordon College in okay. Wenham, Massachusetts. We use their facility, and they're the director of that Studio for Art, Faith, and History, John Skillen, is uh, very involved. Uh, um, we have sort of a, a happy... Um, what, he see, what he would like his... We're using his facility in the off-season, so to speak, um, because they that facility houses their um, sort of a junior year, uh, semester abroad program. Okay. Yeah. So they have two sets of students coming in in the fall and the spring and in their summer. Uh, no one occupies the place mm-hmm. and John is always keen to have the facility used, um, but he wants it to be used by people who ha- are, you know, have a similar project to mm-hmm. their own. Uh, and so we've, uh, ICS, is, we've entered into this partnership and, um, you know, it's been... Uh, We've been honing it as we go mm-hmm. along, and uh, I'm very excited about it. And so, in that in that setting, this course looks at um, the role of image in the three main branches of Christianity: so uh, Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant, and mm-hmm. how you know image has been the theologies of image that have emerged from each of those uh, branches of Christianity. Um, and then we, at the very end of the course, we look at the, what thinkers from those various branches have to say about the relation of art to Christianity today. Mm-hmm. So we look at the history. You know, so how did we come to this kind of peculiar relationship that art seems to have um, uh, to religion and to uh, Christianity in particular? Um, and you know what? You know, once we look at that history, where where image was, you know, deeply rooted. Uh, in, in Christianity, um, we sort of look at, you know, what people are saying about that relationship today hmm. at the end of the course. Are you doing any writing right now or any any conference stuff that is going on soon? Or um, At the moment, I'm just finishing uh, a chapter in, in the Festschrift for Lambert Seidervart. Okay. Um, yeah, like I'm like a paragraph away from being oh, wow. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> which I'm sure that my colleagues who are <laughs> busy editing that would <laughs> would like me to be doing it as we speak. Um, that that particular chapter is uh, on Abraham Kuyper, who's of course an important uh, philosopher uh, and statesman in the uh, Dutch continental tradition that that um, ICS is uh, founded in. Um, so it's Kuiper's interpretation of John Calvin around the idea of the role of Protestantism in, in the Western disenchantment narrative. Mm-hmm. So um, that theme of secularization and the Protestants are, of course, very uh, usually isolated, shall we say, as, as uh, you know, 
being significant for you know that disenchantment of the world or or to take away you know uh, um, the that role of mediation you know everything that we see and feel as some kind of reflection of of the divine somehow and that uh, Calvin often gets uh, blamed depending upon depending upon your point of view um, for that disenchantment because he he took he took uh, imagery out of out of worship yeah. um, his his Eucharistic theology is interpreted as as being um, an aesthetic mm-hmm. it's you you're you know you just feel the the power of the divine uh, at the Eucharist and um, the presence uh, and there's no, the way it is mediated is in, unimportant according to that interpretation, um, but that is and that is Kuiper's interpretation, um, but it is quite a, a misreading of of Calvin, I, I think. So that's what the chapter is about. Um, I also have a piece coming out um, whose exact title I won't uh, remember. Oh, I know what it's about. Uh, um, it's on. It's it's about what are called thinking images, okay. the idea that uh, that images present epistemically. I think is the way to say it. Um, that um, to put it in context, Kant was often read as you know promoting a, a um, uh, an emotion emotionist kind of interpretation where what aesthetics is how we. Feel about beauty, okay, yeah. and uh, and the cognitive is not really factored in, um, and that's an ongoing problematic in the history of theorizing. Has been in art historiography how we write art history, whether or not you give value to the relationship between word and image, or whether or not you think image is something that just operates outside the context of of um, any kind of cognitive thought. Um, so in that particular paper, what I was looking at was, um, the way in which the concept of energia, um, which is this kind of energy, sometimes called grace, um, this energy that is, uh, that is telltale of kind of the aesthetic affect, um, how it, it is misinterpreted as being simply associated with the emotions, uh, and, in classical, in the classical tradition, it's always brought up in rhetorical treatises as, as, uh, as a kind of a, as affective and related to the emotions. Um, but coming out of the Aristotelian tradition, out of Aristotle's rhetoric, um, it's tied to metaphor, mm-hmm. uh, and so it raises a whole nother way what um, Hans Georg Gadamer would call another aesthetic consciousness based on uh, the activity of metaphor, which has both a cognitive and affective aspect. So metaphor opens up, gives us meaning around something, um, but it does it in an energizing way, uh, in an aesthetic way, where we have where we have a sensate experience of, you know, of those, shall we say, the fittingness of that metaphor, etc. So that comes up in the context of trying to, um, in my case wanting to um, work against the notion that uh, visual affect is always um, an emotional one and not both a cognitive and emotional one together. 
Great. It's been great to hear what you have been working on, and I'm excited to hear about uh, how you've come to this place at ICS. So, and Danielle will walk you through that. In this segment, we're moving on from what you've been working on to talk directly to the professors of the future. And side note, Rebecca, you're my advisor here at ICS, and I'm always fascinated to hear about the massive amounts of research that you end up doing. Uh, And I've taken three of the courses that you mentioned, and I can attest they were all wonderful and very helpful and foundational. So I would recommend them to anyone and everyone. Side note, ended. Um, But now... We want to talk about what it's like to be a scholar and how you made your way into academic life. We hope over time to map the journey from being an undergraduate student to being a professor of philosophy or theology. And this week, we're asking Rebecca to narrate a bit about her undergraduate years, specifically asking what moved her in the direction of where she is now at ICS. So Rebecca, tell me everything. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Where did you end up? Where did you go to undergrad first? Yeah. Okay. So I started out in art school. Uh Um, I started out at Washington University Art School uh, in St. Louis, Missouri, which is a very well-known, big, big uh, art school, secular art school. Um, I was There are reasons for that, which I won't go into, but um, it was an overwhelming experience. It was the height of conceptual art. So the, the practice of art, the techniques involved, which is what everybody, art student kind of hopes for, um, was really not part of the curriculum. What you you were, art was pretty conceptual, so it was the idea of what the artist does in society had run, you know, to uh, huge heights, you know, about, so you have a bunch of 17-year-olds and you're telling them you're profound and what you need to do is impress us with your profundity when, and, you know, there are certain things that were happening sort of in the art world uh, you would stay kind of tuned to to see where the various trends were at the moment. But it was deeply unsatisfying. Um, and, and somewhat um, I sensed at the time uh, that what was being asked of me was well outside the range of what I was capable of um, in terms of just even knowing my own culture. And so that came out of also being the product of uh, a moment, so we'll say in the, my schooling in the 70s, which was highly alternative. I, mean, I came from Massachusetts, which was on the forefront of various kinds of alternative education. Uh, we, didn't, we, we didn't study history as far as I could. That was after years of studying American history in grade school. We got to high school. We never studied world history. We studied contemporary social problems. Um, so, I, you know, already I felt like there was some gaps. Uh, and it was a wonderful, it was a great school. It was a, lo- a local public school, but a great high school that I went to. Very well known to this day as being, you know, rigorous and all that stuff. Um, but it was just sort of the, the moment in time where uh, I think we suffered um, from, you know, an attempt to kind of bring education up to date and make it relevant and all those issues. Um so that probably contributed as well to uh, that sense that I had that I'm being asked to, you know, be a, a profound commentator 
on my culture and society, and I know nothing about it. <laughs> um, other, you know, other than a, than a, being a well-read young person, etc. So, what I really didn't know, you know, I hadn't studied. Um, so that led me from my. I, I went to art school for one year, and was almost just kind of blown away by it. Um, and you can imagine it was a real hothouse of youth, youthful ideas. <laughs> <laughs> of a variety of kinds. Um, and that all kind of blew me away as well. Um, so then I, I applied, I had applied in that year to Brandeis University, which is back in the uh, Boston area. Um, and another, uh, you know, and was accepted there and some other places, like at Wellesley and places like that. And I chose Brandeis because it had a, um, a reputation for being academically very strong, um, but also politically, uh, to the left, I think you could say, in in the, in the way that you know the American Jewish tradition had that, um, you know, a very strong academic tradition, um, but you know, not mainline North American, you might say. Um, and I should an addendum to that would be that uh, my father had many contacts at Brandeis because he had his own field of study had been uh, Old Testament uh, Hebrew language and literature and. Um, so I, you know, I, I had known people there and that kind of thing. So I ended up going to Brandeis, which, and I studied art history and also uh, the history of ideas. Um, and I'm trying, there was a very, I cannot bring, I'd have to go onto the internet and research this guy that I studied with who was apparently a very famous uh, intellectual historian who I just didn't appreciate at the time at all. Um, but anyway, that was, so those two things, you know, you can see where, where yeah. it's going. Um, How would you characterize your time at Brandeis? I mean, you characterized your time at yeah. art school fairly well, I think. But Well, was I was, you know, I was what you might call a day student. So I didn't live on campus, which was a pro which I think, in, you know, in retrospect was probably a mistake. I mean, I, my family lived close enough for me to do that. They weren't next door, but it was, uh, you know. So I commuted. Um, Again, which didn't have me entering into the life of the campus all that much. I made some very long-standing friends um, and with some professors uh, you know, to this day who I still correspond with. Um, yeah, I mean, but it was it was quite rigorous and it was um, you know really really challenging. Um, uh, it was a very good experience, uh, and, and, I, and it allowed me again. It was undergraduate education. Um, less wrapped up than I think, you know, many schools have to be t today um, with making sure that they could provide statistics around what kind of job you got and, and, and how much money you were making at, in that job. Um, so it, just an incredibly strong academic tradition and a willingness to, you know, to let their uh, students go and, and discover um, and all of what I did was humanities. Um, I did languages as well, so I, I did Latin there. And uh, would you be able to put your finger on kind of the ways it was challenging to you as a, a young person? Well, first, I mean, I've already isolated that I basically had no education, <laughs> <laughs> so that was its own challenge. I took a Roman history course that was. Um, 
you know, it was trial by fire. I mean, and, and there was no great inflation whatsoever. So you could really, you could do very poorly, even though you were trying real hard. Um, Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was challenging in that way. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, it was a, it was a good experience to be, you know, sort of the only Gentile. No, I wasn't the only Gentile. There were lots of Gentiles at the, at the school, but but um, to be in the minority as a Gentile, that's that that's very good. Um, yeah. Um, at this uh, at the same time, I was I went to church at uh, uh, an Episcopal church called Christ Church in Hamilton Wenham, which is where my family's from, which is near. Um, which is near Gordon College, so I have a long-standing relationship to Gordon College, and my father taught at what's called Gordon Conwell. The two are not; they have history, but they're not the same school. Uh, they're not related in that way. Um, but that community, so that particular church, I was very involved. Uh, well, I what? How do I say this? Um, I was not raised an Episcopalian; I was raised Presbyterian. Um, and I was the fourth child, and my parents were just as pleased as punch when I said that I'd like to go to the Episcopal Church. They were fine with that. Uh, my brother had, my eldest brother went there before I did, and I was even, you know, I was confirmed there fairly young. And um, and it was a, a, a moment of aesthetic revelation to be part of a, a, a tradition for 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 which the aesthetic was so uh, significant in worship. So that was that obviously suited me and who I was. Um, uh, and that nourished me, I think you could say, during those university years in terms of my social life and my um, uh, and and I had many friends you know who went to Gordon College or um, even to this day, some very my dearest and closest friends who live in Grimsby, Ontario. Uh, he's the rector there at a church called St. Andrews. But they were there. Uh, she was my friend Ellen, was, went to Gordon College, and we're still, we're still um, best buddies. <laughs> so I think it's fair to assume that your kind of expectations and what you wanted from an undergraduate education changed when you decided or you found out that art school was not for you. What did those expectations change too when you started at Brandeis? And did they stay the same mm -hmm. throughout your time there? Or did they change in your time there as well? Well, I could, again, I, I majored in art history and history of ideas. Um, so the natural, when I came out of, when I finished, um, I knew that I wanted to, well, to be honest, I knew I wanted, I had a simple project, which was, I'm really interested in, um, you know, all of these ideas. That's really seems to be what, you know, turns my crank. Um, but I didn't know if the academic life was what I wanted to do. And I, and um, I, no one is 100% pleased by their undergraduate education, you know, in terms of their own state of being uh, at the time and the transitions that one goes through. Um, you know, so I, I wondered if I want, you know, you're always feeling like the, the burden of, you know, producing the next paper, doing the reading on, you know, all these things. And I thought, well, the ideal would be to do, see if I would do this if I had none of those pressures. 
Um, so I ended up enrolling at ICS as a non-degree student, a special student, um, and that was uh, I did that for a year. I studied with Cal Seerfeld and Thomas McIntyre. I met Bob Sweetman in that year. Um, we were uh, uh, co-conspirators <laughs> in, in Thomas McIntyre's history seminar, um, and uh, that gave me. Um, an opportunity to see, you know, if reading and writing was something that, that I did when I was not pressured to do it. You know, I, there was nothing, you know, except saving face, I suppose, nothing that would, you know, that would make me have to finish this program because it wasn't really a program, all of these things. Um, and, and I think ICS, um, I congratulate ICS 100% on its capacity um, to turn that into this really exciting uh, phenomenon, you know, to, to enter into a community of people searching, um, uh, open to ideas, searching through those ideas, you know, collaboratively, communally. Um, yeah, it was like a dream come true. And of course, Seerfeld was phenomenal. Um, uh, he was working on his um, art historiography, his cartography. Mm. Uh, at love that yeah <laughs> at that time uh, which was really useful for me because I was had studied art history and all of the philosophical methodology that um, determined how art history was done you know how the writing of uh, art history was accomplished unfolded before my very eyes you know because Cal had that kind of apparatus um, as the institute does and you know recognizing that the biases that that fueled um, these various approaches. Art history as a discipline is grounded, is very young, uh, and it you know it was at the height of a kind of formalism across the university, where what distinguished your particular field of study was what governed your methodology. So the methodology that governed art history was visual formalism, and it got reduced. It reduced art history to two polarities. On the one hand, all you looked at was the way the thing looked. Oh, look, there's a line that goes like this, and it looks like it belongs with this line, and you never talked about the biography of the artist. You were just looking at changes in style um, and and be becoming connoisseuring around being able to uh, look at art and connoisseur um, the style and, and hence where it belonged in, the his in this development, in this long development in art history. Um, and on the other side, uh, it there developed as kind of a separate iconography where you dealt with the meaning of images, and kind of never the the two, you know, met. Um, and that's been completely, um, you know, uh, uh, thrown over. You know, the methodologies around art history have changed dramatically in the in the last 30, 35, 40 years. Um, yeah, Cal was already, well, he was, you know, certainly already, I remember, you know, we read The Social History of Art by Arnold Hauser, which was, a, which was a, um, you know, basically a Marxist uh, interpretation of the, the so, social purposes for art. Uh, that might say it a little too strongly. Um, uh, you know, at the same time, recognizing that, you know, uh, the people that I had worked worked with, you know, in, as an undergraduate at Brandeis, you know, we're very involved with this kind of formalist training. 
Um, yeah, so that was that was mind blowing. Uh, and from that year at ICS, um, I went to Columbia for an MA, uh, and it just put me in another frame of reference. That just became incredibly fruitful. Um, uh, a guy I worked with, I didn't like a lot, but um, it, because he was uh, he was a force to be reckoned with, kind of in the New York. Uh, art world, a guy named Kirk Varnado, who eventually became the uh, the director of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Um, but he was a uh, he was um, gosh, uh, not even know how to describe him. <laughs> <laughs> you can describe him in a way that you can either decide to include or not. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess this is public. I don't want to say anything <laughs> dramatic, but. Um, no, I mean, it, it. he was very interested in the new methodologies that were emerging at the time, so that that was good news. Um, he was just quite an uh, ego, you know, sort of ego-driven person. Um, and the, I have to say that the experience of graduate school at Columbia was also, um, you know, I had people that we became, you know, good friends and longstanding friends and all of that, but the environment was was you know, mind-blowingly competitive. Um, so unlike ICS, which had been this community of learning, um, you know, it was how to undercut your, you know, rise to the top of, at all possible. So, of course, that, you know, that had its own lessons. Um, and after that, uh, I had a bit of a hiatus after that. I got my MA and was back in Toronto and then uh, finished, did a PhD at the University of Toronto. Um, one kind of maybe brief question I have for you is, is there anything that you've, um, you've learned to appreciate more about your undergraduate experience now that you've become mm. a professor mm -hmm. yourself? That I appreciate about the yeah. undergraduate experience. Yeah, either well, appreciate it more or understand it differently. Yeah. Well, I you know I would think of personalities. I mean, teachers that I really, uh, who I really felt were committed teachers. So I think you can look back on that a little better and, and understand you know what's involved. And um, I had a I, I I you know not that my Latin skills are what they should be, but I had a great Latin teacher who was just amazing. Um, in that was at Brandeis. Um, and he, and I had a wonderful drawing teacher in my art school days, like. A fantastic drawing teacher. I mean, he taught me more about drawing, you know. And he was, and he was still interested in drawing. That was maybe the phenomenal <laughs> part, you know. Whereas my design teacher was like, he didn't show up to class. He, you know, it was very disheartening. Um, so, I think that the individuals around that education. Uh, I think we can always look back and you know, wonder the ways in which we could have maximized what we were doing. Uh, or because we, from the benefit of hindsight, right? Yeah, and I think fostering, I think fostering your own community of of discourse among your friends. I think that's pretty significant, especially at that age. Yeah, and that to me that seems like that wouldn't be something you would think to do, just on your own at that age. No, that's yeah. right. That's right. Um, because it does it, it. It it's a it's a wonderful time. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful time. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing your undergraduate years with us, your far-ranging undergraduate years. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I could tell you that would be Do you have parting advice for anyone? Advice. Words of wisdom. Um, 
Yeah. See, yeah, seize the day. Seize the day. And, and, um, you know, you're the generation coming forward. I mean, you always feel as you're always weighed down by your, what you feel is your lack of everything. Um, but your professors don't see you that way. They really don't. They're usually stunned by your capacities. And, and, uh, yeah. And so I would say, don't, I mean, I wouldn't be cocky or anything, but be, uh, you know, have some assurance about your own capacities and willing and, and engagement with what you're doing. Um, and it will, you know, instead of being weighed down by what you feel like, you're, what are your incapacities? Uh, which I think is, I think, you know, undergraduates are very prone to. And I, I mean, I would say from, from my years of teaching undergraduates, I was so uh, very open, shall we say, to questions. I wasn't, you know, the, who, who didn't want their lecture disturbed by questions. And so finally, in exasperation, because people didn't ask questions, I said, like, what's the deal here? Why, you know, don't you ask questions to learn? And the, the answer was that they were worried about what their peers would think about their question, that it might be a stupid question. And I think you can give that one right up because, <laughs> because it doesn't, I mean, in my books, there aren't, if you don't have the knowledge, it's not a stupid question. Um, you know, any, at any, you know, any level of knowledge progressing towards, you know, your, your future enlightenment is a worthwhile question. And I have one, one of my brothers is sort of a science type and, and he from the get go was curious beyond measure and never, you know, when he didn't know how to do something, he asked questions, he read about it, he, he pursued it. And I think that's, you know, don't uh, presume that you have nothing to offer because, and, you know, just keep, keep going. Yeah. Great. Keep the curiosity alive. Yeah. Keep the curiosity alive. <laughs> Right. Well, thank you for joining us. Okay. That was painful. And that brings us to the last of our regular segments, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Danielle, what's your pleasure? I'm going to go out on a seldom trod limb here wow. and do a sport related. Sports. I pleasure. love sports. It's true. My one sport is biking, basically. And now that the ice has melted and the world is okay to exist in outside again, um, my pleasure is biking. And specifically, there's a place that I'm always surprised to when I talked to Torontonians to find out how many people don't know about this place that is my favorite place to bike to um, because it's amazing and it's not difficult to get to, but a lot of people just don't know that it's there. Uh, it goes by a few different names. So it's called the Leslie Street Spit or Tommy Thompson Park. Okay. Uh, and it's on the East End, which may account for why the people who I talk to who tend to exist on the West End and think that the East End does not exist don't know about it. Um, it does exist. It does exist. It is not a figment of my imagination. <laughs> Caveat one. Um, but yeah, it's so from where I tend to bike, which is like midtown and a bit west down to it, it's about a 
45 minute bike ride to the beginning of the park. Uh, and then you can bike through the park, walk through the park. You can do whatever you want through the park. You can't drive through the park. Um, and then can't drive through the park. <laughs> uh, and then it's maybe like a 20 or 30 minute bike ride out to the end and then back, which is, you know, it's a nice ride. But the park is really nice because you get out there. So you could like take a bus too if you wanted uh, and then walk through it. It's a nature preserve. Uh, it kind of, it's in, huh. structurally, it's an interesting place because they like built it up out of like construction scraps, basically. So it's a man made concrete island that like started to grow things, basically. And so they kind of like encouraged that and it became a nature preserve. Uh, and I just found out too that it's quote unquote an important bird area. Okay. There are like 300 different species of birds that just hang out in the park. So if you love birds at all, or if you just kind of want to be around and spot some very fun birds, it's a wonderful place to go because they are everywhere. Uh, and they're like rabbits and butterflies and like beautiful flowers at different times of the years. And they have amazing like cottonwood trees everywhere. And it's probably actually also the best view that you can get of downtown Toronto once you get to the end of it. Uh, and it's just like over the water. So there's nothing in your way. And it's the whole of the Toronto skyline. Um, and there's like a fun little lighthouse at the end. And it's just a really nice. You feel like you're completely out of the city. You can't hear like city noises. All you hear is birds. It's really nice. It's my favorite spot. So this summer or spring, spring is a good time too. Grab a dog if you have a dog. Grab a bike if you've got a bike. Grab a friend if you've got a friend. Go to Tommy Thompson Park. That's my pleasure. So my, my pleasure is um, trivia night. So every Monday night, my friends and I go to the Coach and Lantern Pub in Ancaster, Ontario. And we compete in pub trivia. And we get cheap pints and half price apps and we get to go to a really old pub um, which the patio is the site of the last public hanging in canada so i'm take sure that, that for what you will i'm sure that only does good things for your your trivia skills oh well you can just breathe that trivia at uh, that point <laughs> trivia blessing ghosts hanging around yeah yeah i bet you dared i would like it <laughs> he's all into ghosts you know Oh, he is. He is. Mm -hmm. um, Multiple questions. What do you mean? Me. Multiple yes. questions for you. Yeah, go ahead. Trivia, go. Uh, does your group have the same team name every time? And if so, what? Are, and if so, what is it? Our team name changes every time, uh -huh. but it is a variation every time on a theme. What is? So, one time. Like you, you, you fill out your sheet and then you hand in your sheet at the end of every round. And one time the answer was Mortal Kombat, but somebody was not paying attention and wrote down Mortal Goons. And I guess she was just rushing through and not really paying attention and gave us the right answer, the check mark on that one. And so since then, it's been like two years. We every, um, every team name has some variation on goon or a rhyme with goon in it. So mm -hmm. um, my favorite, maybe my favorite is uh, a goon buggy. Uh, 
or uh, um, we do like uh, like Christmas ones. So Goon King Wenceslas. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, there's lots of them. They're, well, they're obviously. Anyways, so pub trivia. That's my pleasure. And a good pleasure it is. And it goes along with the pleasure of Bo's Lug Tread Ale and um, Half Price Nachos. You really can't go wrong. Those really are the two necessary ingredients for like... Pleasure. Pleasure and beneficial socializing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of our show this week. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can find my co-host as at Mark Standish and me as at Beware the Yeti. You can also follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, go tell your friends. <laughs>